The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. I am grateful for the privilege of pastoring you with the Word of God this morning. We're continuing in our series. We have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark in a series called Follow the Sun. I didn't go back to count how many sermons we've done yet, but um, it's going to be interesting to see where we've reached. We are quickly approaching the midpoint of this remarkable Gospel account. So this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, and the passage we're focused on is between verses 1 and verse 23. So I have a vivid recollection one particular, of one particular birthday party I attended when I was 13 years old. It was a party for my friend Louis Ray, uh, who's actually a few weeks younger than me. And it was in the summer. Uh, and I don't remember details like anything we ate or anything like that, but I remember how hard we played that afternoon, just outside in his yard and on the floor mat controller of his Nintendo gaming system. I mean, I know, yeah. State of the art circa 1989. So when I came home that Friday evening with a pain in my abdomen, the reasonable conclusion that my dad came to was that I probably had overexerted myself. And it was a reasonable conclusion. I mean, we play it hard. Now, my dad is a medical doctor and a very good one, I might add. But what's also relevant is that if I felt like something was, was wrong, I would regularly complain to him and then check back in a little bit later for a follow-up visit. And often it was nothing to worry about. Saturday morning came, and I was still in pain, though. I remember at some point in the day, lying in my bed, and one of my parents, they were, like, pumping my legs to give me some abdominal exercise and doing that one where, you know, you raise your legs, and you're supposed to keep them straight and lower them and try not to touch, you know, the surface. And we're doing all of that, but it wasn't getting any better. By Sunday afternoon, I was walking around the house, just doubled over. I was just, like, down like this. Uh, And... I think it was around that point that my father was seriously second-guessing his diagnosis. Later that evening, he asked a family friend to come over, and I remember Uncle Charlie came, and he asked me a few questions, and then you know, he, he listened to my stomach, and then he was having this kind of muted conversation with my dad. And the next thing I know, I was being rushed to the hospital. Around 2 a.m., I was wheeled into an operating theater to do an emergency appendectomy. Now, that's not adding anything to you. That's taking out your appendix. The good news is I lived. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, well, yeah, that's a part of the story, too. <laughs> you know, I never faulted my dad in any way about that situation, and I, and I never asked him how he felt about it. But I'm sure that he was greatly relieved that with the help of his friend, they figured out what was really going on before it got worse. As a doctor, he understands more than most that misdiagnosis can be deadly. Even experts can get their diagnosis wrong sometimes. And that's what's happening in our passage in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees, the experts in God's law, had a legitimate concern but an incorrect diagnosis, which led to a conflict with Jesus. Jesus would use the occasion to diagnose their true problem and the debilitating condition that all of us as human beings suffer from. He is the authoritative interpreter of God's law, and he's the only one who thoroughly understands the human heart. So even though this scene is far removed from us in time and in space, we are desperately in in need, the same way the crowds were that day, for the clarity that Jesus offers. And there's so much at stake. 
To misdiagnose the nature of our problem would be deadly. To not understand the source of the problem would surely mean that we'd spend our lives trusting in wrong solutions and we'd suffer the consequences eternally. So let's listen carefully to this interaction so that we can benefit from the insight that Jesus wants to give us. Let's read Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. This is God's living and active word that pierces the division between soul and spirit and discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So we're now six chapters into this gospel, and Mark refuses to slow the pace. He now presents Jesus in yet another conflict with the religious leaders, but this time about defilement, about purity. They are trying to find fault with him, but he turns the tables and issues a stinging rebuke to these leaders. He then uses the opportunity to teach the crowds with staggering authority about the true source of uncleanness. And then he explains his teaching in private to his confused disciples. And his teaching is so pointed that it's hard, at, 
it's hard for us not to see the big idea. The evil that comes out of our hearts defiles us. The Pharisees were actually right to be concerned about impurity. But their understanding was wrong and their approach to the issue elevated their practices above obedience to God's law. And they had severely underestimated the seriousness of our problem as human beings. Purity could never be achieved or maintained by washing your hands or bathing your body. The evil that comes out of our hearts defiles us. It's been a while since Mark in this gospel narrative has presented this much of what Jesus said to us. Remember, he's been giving us a lot of what Jesus was doing. So we want to pay close attention to this text which has so much of Jesus speaking. And the drama of this passage unfolds for us in two scenes. Jesus reprimands the Pharisees and scribes, and then Jesus instructs the crowds and his disciples. So let's enter the first scene. Jesus reprimands the Pharisees and scribes. With very few words, Mark sets up a tension-filled scene that's going to drive this whole account. I hope you're getting used to paying, to paying attention to the details. When you're watching a play that's well-written, what starts to happen after a while is when a character enters the stage again and you're getting to know them, you, ha- you start to have an expectation. So if they're one of the humorous characters, if they're the comic relief, you're getting ready to laugh. And if they're w- one of the villains, you're kind of watching them carefully and you're getting ready to see what they're going to do. Right here in, verse, in, in the first verse of chapter 7, if we pay attention to who has entered the scene, entered the stage, and to where they're from, we're going to anticipate impending conflict. The Pharisees and scribes are not new to us. They've played a role in this story before. From the very first time we met them in chapter 2, they have their eyes on Jesus. And they're not watching to learn. They've come to scrutinize. They always have questions, but they never ask those questions to grow in understanding, but to make accusations. And Mark says that this particular delegation, like another we saw in chapter 3, has come from Jerusalem. Place matters in Mark's story. Jerusalem is where Jesus will eventually be handed over to the religious authorities and rejected and killed. Our author means for us to expect confrontation, the confrontation that we're about to see play out. So it's not that the Pharisees and scribes, in the course of going about their official business, happened to notice that some of Jesus' disciples ate without washing their hands. Their official business was surveillance, and their concern was not hygiene. Jesus' disciples were violating the tradition of the elders. Mark goes to some length in the passage, if you look at that first section, those first about five verses, to explain to his readers what was involved in that tradition. And that helps us to realize that those he was writing to were not familiar with these practices. That means they weren't Jewish. And that's going to be relevant to our understanding of this story. So the tradition of the elders involved a particular way of washing your hands before you ate. Most commentators think you kind of cup your hands and then you fill them with water and you wash that way. It also involved washing after coming back from the marketplace. But the original text uses a different word from the one it used for washing hands, which more than likely indicates that they bathed their whole body after coming back from the marketplace, before eating. Okay, you see, I mean, coronation market dirty, so can't see with that. But remember, they had no running water in their homes. So bathing at home was a real effort. And in those days, people never bathed all the well. So any water they used would have to be drawn from wells or from rivers and moved to their homes in order to facilitate this bathing. 
So they had to constantly be giving special attention to washing their hands or their bodies. And it probably felt like the kind of focus that many were attempting early on in the pandemic. Washing your hands and singing happy birthday to make sure you wash them long enough. Changing clothes immediately when you get home and taking off your shoes outside, even if you never ever did that before. Wiping down groceries and doorknobs and surfaces and so on and so forth. So if it wasn't disease, what concern would have led to this kind of vigilance? They were concerned about purity. God's law given to the Israelites established ceremonial purity as an urgent concern. They could never approach God in a casual way, traipsing into his presence however they wanted. One had to keep themselves from things that God said made you unclean. The ritual purity required of them was meant to be a constant reminder of the holiness of God. We've seen this come to the surface several times so so far in Mark's narrative. The leper we met in chapter 2 was ceremonially unclean and was therefore an outcast uh, because of the condition that he suffered with. The woman we met in chapter 5 who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years should not have been in a crowd because she was a source of uncleanness. Touching dead bodies made one unclean. And the Mosaic law specified animals like pigs, for example, whose meat should not be eaten because they were unclean. But here, the issue that the Pharisees took with the disciples was not what they were eating. The specific charge that they brought to Jesus is that his disciples were eating with defiled or unclean hands, since they failed to wash their hands before eating. But the disciples were not disobeying any of God's commands. The Mosaic law did not require one to wash their hands before dinner. Now, your parents might require that and you should obey them, but the Mosaic law had no such stipulation. Yes. Yes, honey, let's... They need to wash their hands. No, there were some specific hand-washing regulations for priests who ate food that had been consecrated to God. But those rules did not apply to regular Israelites. So notice that the charge the scribes and Pharisees brought was that the disciples were not walking according to the tradition of the elders. If you scan your eyes down this text between verse 3 and verse 13, you'll notice that tradition is at the heart of this controversy. It's, it's mentioned at least five times in that section. The tradition of the elders was this huge body of regulations that had been passed down orally from, generation, from one generation to the next. It was basically a commentary on God's law, stipulating how it should be understood and obeyed. I mean, their goal was noble. They wanted to keep the law safe like a bullet in a glass case. So they built a fence around it and with all these traditions so that nobody could get close enough to break the actual law. In fact, they believed that Moses had come down from Mount Sinai with God's written law and with an oral law which had been passed down now faithfully through the generations and now they were the custodians. So they were convinced that this tradition was authoritative and following it was necessary to please God. If you want to understand why they challenged Jesus, just think of Akikas. Yeah, a martial arts film like your husband loves. You don't know Akikas, Sarah? Okay, yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, you know know those martial arts films from back in the day where you have the out-of-sync English dubbing? Yeah, right. So think about those films. In those films, if a group of students is, you know, walking around a town and they're behaving in some way that's unruly and, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of violating some norms uh, and they study under a particular master 
What would happen is somebody would come up to them, and inevitably there'd be some dramatic posing and pointing, and they'd say something like, your students are unruly. They are harassing the sacred peacock. Or, or something along those lines, you know. You see, it was assumed that the behavior of the students was a reflection on the teaching of the master. It was the same in Jesus' day. So out of their concern for such disregard for their traditions, they challenged Jesus. Jesus' reply is shocking. I mean, whatever happened to gentle Jesus, meek and mild? This is not mild. This is spicy. He is sarcastic. He's, he's saying things like, oh, good job there. You guys are experts at rejecting God's commands to establish your tradition. He actually doesn't even address the issue that they raise. He goes straight at the heart of the matter. He goes straight at their hearts. He calls them hypocrites. That word originally referred to an actor, to somebody who would put on a mask and play a part in a dramatic presentation. But it came to mean somebody who was a pretender. Someone who put on a show but wasn't actually sincere. He was saying that you all are just like the people that Isaiah preached to. Guilty of worship that was superficial and not a genuine expression of devotion to God. Guilty of putting your own customs above God's rules. And to substantiate this damning assessment of them, he gives them a case in point. So the fifth commandment of ten required the honoring of father and mother. And that meant not just calling them on their birthdays or toasting them on their wedding anniversary, but providing for them in their old age. But what the Pharisees would facilitate was a man abdicating his responsibility by basically calling Cree, calling Korban. It was a way of pledging your possessions to God. The man, of course, would retain use of his property throughout his life, but it would no longer be available for lesser purposes like caring for mom and dad. And even if he was conscience-stricken after making this vow and wanted to honor God and his parents, the Pharisees, who were the law lords, would make it clear that he could not, under any circumstances, break his vow. And Jesus ends his rebuke of the Pharisees and scribes by saying that the case of Corban is characteristic of how their tradition constantly misread and overruled God's law. Now, tradition is not a bad thing in and of itself. It can be very meaningful and helpful. And the Old Testament law took vows very seriously. So what was the problem? Mark Strauss helps us to see the issue clearly. Jesus condemns this use of korban, not just because, not just because honor for parents supersedes vow-taking, but because the selfish motives behind such traditions are contrary to the heart of God and the true spirit of the law. The Pharisees and the scribes were authorities when it came to God's law. They behaved and taught and ruled as if they understood it, but they didn't get it at all. But the true authority, the one who was zealous for God's law and God's honor, saw right through them to their hard hearts. Their hearts were far from God, and they were leading others astray with their teaching and binding them with their rules. Now, we need to move the spotlight from the chastened Pharisees and shine it on ourselves. We need to be aware of the dangers of legalism and hypocrisy in our own lives. Legalism relies on our own practices to make us righteous. No, it's easy for us to look in the mirror of God's word and see people behind us, whom we are not like, and see how it applies to them. Uh, I remember several years ago, Sam and I were on a trip to Atlanta, and we met one of her, somebody who had worked in an office with her. We went and visited her, 
her, her, the school she had studied at. And when the woman found out that we went to a church that was only two and a half to three hours long and not all day like the one she attended, she berated us. I mean, how can anyone worship God properly in such a short space of time? Well, look at me now. I mean, look at us now. It's not a secret that in Jamaica, some of the most popular Christian denominations have particular worship traditions and often have very defined rules for dress and conduct. Now, the problem does not lie in the traditions themselves. But when traditions become measures of righteousness or are seen as indicators of genuine salvation, then we're starting to have a problem. But you see, the truth is we are tempted towards the same thing. We ourselves can turn good practices into measures of righteousness. You know, I'm having my daily devotions, I'm fasting, I'm reading through the Bible each year. We have family devotions consistently. Me and my wife have consistent date nights. We avoid certain movies and music. We can turn almost anything into a platform for trying to stand shoulder to shoulder with God and for looking down on others. Or here's another temptation. We can take pride in being freed from the shackles of tradition and in our gospel centrality and clarity and look down on others as having form but lacking substance. Worse yet, somebody feel it. All right, all right. No, it's a real temptation we face. Uh, even as a preacher, sometimes I'll hear other preachers and I'll be like, what is that guy doing? And it's easy to kind of say, well, you know, we've been trained in a particular tradition and it's superior, therefore I am superior. And no, that's just not true. All of us live by the grace of God. But worse yet than some of that, we can be guilty of the hypocrisy of putting stock in our theology of grace while being permissive in our behavior, delighted to get away with whatever we can, and reluctant to learn and pursue what pleases God. There's a danger that we can become quite satisfied in our forms or in our freedoms and have hearts that are far from God. Now, Jesus went hard at the Pharisees because of the rigor with which they pursued their, tri- their, their twisted tradition and the influence that they had over others, and uh, because all of that made them particularly dangerous. It wasn't just that they were in error. They were leading others into error. So beyond rebuking the religious authorities, he also took the opportunity right then and there to teach the crowds. So our second scene, Jesus instructs the crowds and his disciples. So we're in verse 14. Jesus calls the people together and then he calls for them to pay careful attention. Now, crowds have been following Jesus for some time now and he's been teaching them. But this is the first of only two times in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus summons the crowds to teach them. So, this is an important moment then. He will now address the specific issue that the Pharisees raised. Look at verses 14 and 15 in your Bibles. Hear me, all of you, and understand... There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So he calls for their attention and then he gives them a parable. That's what disciples called his saying in verse 17. So we need to refresh our memory about parables. Parables were sayings, scenarios, or stories that Jesus used in his teaching to simultaneously conceal and reveal truth. They repelled outsiders, those who weren't particularly interested, and attracted insiders, those who desired to understand more. Soon we'll see the disciples asking Jesus about the parable. 
And this was Jesus' pattern. He taught the crowds in public, and then he explained his teaching to his disciples in private. But, but before we get there, pay close attention to what Jesus says. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Well, I mean, that effectively dismisses the Pharisees' concerns. But it feels like Jesus just dropped a bomb while he was trying to exterminate some ants. It's completely clear now that, the, the, that, it's completely clear now that eating without washing your hands, though it might get you physically ill, it does not make you unclean or unfit to enter God's presence. But what about all those dietary laws in the Old Testament? I mean, if you look at Leviticus 11, it lists all kinds of animal protein that could not be eaten, including pork and shellfish, some of my personal favorites. And it says very clearly... And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. So what is Jesus saying? There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him? Did he just rebuke the Pharisees for rejecting God's command and then turn around and do a similar thing himself? Mark, for his part, wants the impact of Jesus' teaching to be crystal clear. So he offers an editorial comment that you'll see in verse 19 where Jesus is explaining his, his teaching to the disciples. He says, thus he declared all foods clean. Clearly, in one sense, Jesus is setting aside the Old Testament dietary laws, but it's neither arbitrary nor self-serving. You see, Mark has revealed Jesus to us as the Lord of the Sabbath, as the authoritative interpreter of God's law. Dietary laws were an object lesson in holiness. Now the teacher himself had arrived on the scene. The whole law pointed to him and he fulfilled it. He came to inaugurate the kingdom of God and he was saying that the old dietary laws did not apply to the citizens of this kingdom. The new wine can't be kept in old wineskins. Now, what, what you need to understand is how important this teaching was for the original readers and for the advance of the gospel. It's probable that Mark placed this story here in his account because Jesus was already interacting with people who are unclean. We've seen some of those stories. Um, and he was about to enter a season of ministry in Gentile territory. The tradition of the Pharisees didn't merely deal with hand washing. Their rules meant that people, Gentiles, were seen as unclean. Jews could not interact with Gentiles. Mark meant for his readers to understand that Jesus was overriding the separation between clean and unclean and ushering in a new era in which God's mercy was being extended to the Gentiles. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, needed a vivid reminder of this lesson. In the book of Acts, we see how Jesus spoke to him in a vision of a sheet being lowered from heaven with all kinds of nasty animals in Peter's mind and instructed him to kill and eat. And Acts 10, 14 and 15 records the rest of the conversation. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Peter comes to realize that the point of the vision was not that he needed to make urgent changes in his diet, but that he was continuing to think about purity traditions in a way that would stop him from interacting with Gentiles and sharing the gospel with them. The book of Acts and the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans in particular confirmed that Jewish purity traditions were a source of contention in the early church. 
What was actually at stake was the spread of the gospel and the fellowship that it was meant to create between people who had formerly been separated. The New Testament does grant uh, these matters to be treated as issues of conscience, but they can no longer be treated as issues of righteousness. But before the pork lovers of the world break into joyful song, we need to give attention to the second half of Jesus' parable. The things that come out of a person are what defile him. For the Pharisees, uncleanness was a danger that came from the outside. Hence the washing and the bathing. But what Jesus says here is devastating news. What we eat doesn't defile us. But we cannot wash away what does. It's inside us. Jesus explained to his disciples that it is the evil thoughts and deeds that spring from our own hearts that defile us. He explained that that's why what we eat can't make us unclean. Because it goes in, passes through the stomach, and then out of our bodies. Biblically speaking, our heart is who we are inside. It's our wills, it's our thoughts, our emotions, our desires. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is the fountain head of the filth which makes us defiled and unworthy to enter the presence of a holy God. We all suffer with this condition because of our fall into sin. And it is not a problem that we can wash away. Jeremiah 2.22 in speaking about ceremonial cleansing says, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. But think for a moment about the world that we live in. Many religions are convinced that external actions can save us. Every year, millions upon millions of Hindus bathe in the Ganges River to purify themselves and to wash away their sins. Islam is different from Hinduism, yet it's not that different in some ways. Thabiti Anyabwele, an American preacher, describes a, a critical point in his journey to the Christian faith uh, years after embracing Islam. He says, and so I'm going I'm to just read what he says at, at length. Once adjusted to all the rituals and outward observances of Islam, I grew more aware of my interior life. Awareness of the emptiness of my own heart grew crystal clear for me after a water cooler conversation with co-workers about people we admired and respected. One co-worker said with all seriousness, I can't think of a more righteous person than Thabiti. Of all the men I know, you are, you are easily the most righteous. You don't curse. You don't drink. You treat your wife well. And she went on. I was taken aback, stunned really. What she observed was outward behavior. What she couldn't see was my heart. One thing I knew, I was not righteous. Not in any essential sense. And increasingly I grew aware that I could not be righteous. I made prayer faithfully. Even developed a dark patch on my forehead from bowing onto my prayer carpet. I read the Quran actively. I did all I could but no righteousness, no essential change resulted. My anger, lust, hatred and evil thoughts were all still with me. As I prepared this message, I was thinking a bit about some of the messages about purity of heart in our own culture. In Biniman, con confidently declares with almost religious fervor, but my heart not dirty, my heart clean, clean like the water from the stream. <laughs> Javinci is more emphatic, my heart too clean. 
Chronix, for his part, in a track that is brilliant musically, wants others to get involved in the celebration. Put your lighters in the air. If you know your heart, clean like a whistle. So what makes these men think that they have clean hearts? Well, Chronix makes his case. Him love him family like cooked food. He tells of how they've stuck by each other through the years. Beanie Man is on a different track. Him say him never bust a chain and never pick a pocket. Him not bad mind and grudgeful. Bad mind. The haters them. You see, in our culture, that's a dirty heart. But if you come up with your own definition of uncleanness, your own selective list, then you can proclaim yourself clean and others dirty. But Proverbs 30 verse 12 has its own lyrics. It warns us. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Me, them things in the Bible. <laughs> you see, we can fool ourselves, but Jesus loves us enough to tell us the truth about our state. Look at the list he gives us in verse 21. It begins with evil thoughts. And the idea is that everything that follows is an expression of our evil thoughts. The grammar in the Greek indicates that Jesus first itemizes six examples of evil actions. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. And then six examples of evil attitudes. Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. In giving us a list like this, Jesus' aim is to be emphatic, not to be exhaustive. So if there's something else that's not on the list, it still counts. What I want to do is briefly to comment on a few items in this list and then talk a little bit about how I think it's meant to serve us. If you look carefully at that first list of six, you'll notice that what's mirrored in them are several of the Ten Commandments. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting. The law was always meant to expose and, and to restrain the evil that resided in our hearts. Sexual immorality is a catch-all term describing all the ways that we take sex out of the context that God created it for. Marriage between one man and one woman. As Christians living in this world, we desperately need to understand God's will when it comes to sex. I mean, we spent time on that in our Set Apart series. I did two sermons on sexuality, and I want to commend them to you again. You see, we need that clarity for our own lives. And we need it if we're going to love those in the world around us. It is an unspeakable tragedy for us to bless and endorse what Jesus says defiles us. The second set of six are much more subtle because they are, are not as easily seen by us and not as easily detected by others. Foolishness, the last one on that list caught my eye. It means to lack good judgment. It's a wrong attitude to God that prevents us from knowing how to behave properly. One of my prayers is that as we grow as a community, as we grow as a local church, we'd be one that's marked by wisdom. But here's the question. Why does Jesus give us such, a, such devastating news about our own hearts and leave us right there? It's not like if you look at the next story, you're going to see a solution. How can we be served by these truths? One way we can grow is to stop misdiagnosing our condition by thinking that our sin comes from outside of us. Like our circumstances. You know, I was under a lot of stress. That's why I did that. Or our upbringing. Look at my family history. I can't do any better. Or other people. It's easy to think that my sinful anger towards my children is a reasonable response to their sin. 
But it's my sin that is being expressed, the sin of my own sinful heart. I'm convinced that one of the things Jesus wants for us is for us to see sin as sin and to grow in our hatred for it. He wants us to see it the way God does, as evil and defiling. Our hearts are deceptive, so we tend towards minimizing our sin, trying to dress it up and call it something else other than the evil it is. Instead, what we can do is begin to pray with the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus also wants us to learn to mourn our sinfulness and to turn from it. James 4, 8 to 10 is instructive in this regard. Uh, and, and, and some of this language is metaphorical, and it's interesting the way it interacts with this passage. But James teaches us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You know, we live in a world that is teaching us more and more that we should avoid negative emotions. That really, the, the goal of our lives is just to be happy and well all the time. But here James is pushing us in a direction that's uncomfortable. But Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he wasn't talking about the mourning we do when people die. He was talking about mourning our sin. Our condition as fallen human beings is horrific. This passage ends on an emphatic low note. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. We cannot wash off our impurity or work it away with spiritual disciplines or good habits. And if it's not dealt with, our uncleanness means that we cannot draw near to God, the source of all blessings. And the news gets worse. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God when he first came to earth. And when he returns, he's going to consummate that kingdom. It will literally be heaven on earth. The book of Revelation describes it as a city coming down from heaven. And it says about it, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Or uncleanness threatens our eternal well-being. What we hear Jesus saying today is not good news. The evil that comes out of our hearts defiles us. But surely the one who healed diseased bodies can do something about our sin-sick hearts. Surely the power which healed droves of sick people in the passage we just looked at last week with all kinds of illnesses can be applied to the corruption within us. The hope in this passage is embodied in the one who was speaking. Jesus himself is the good news. The Old Testament laws could only highlight the uncleanness within us. But Jesus, by shedding his blood, would establish a new covenant in which God delivered on his promise to give us new hearts. That's why Paul could write a letter to Titus and say, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, 
by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hallelujah. If you are in Christ, you can know that though evil thoughts and actions still flow from your heart, God's free and full forgiveness continues to extend to you, and you now have the power to do what pleases God. Resolve to please Him this week and repent when you fall. If you are not in Christ, look to Him, run to Him, trust in Him. The one who has diagnosed your greatest problem is Himself the cure. And he stands ready to have mercy on you if you would turn from your sin and from your self-sufficiency and put your trust in him. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.